You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Australian basketball coach Rob Beveridge. Rob began coaching state representative sides at the age of 19. Over the next 27 years, his career steadily progressed, with some of the key highlights being a gold medal leading Australia at the World Under-20 Championships, a Paralympic silver medal, a Commonwealth Games gold medal, and a coveted national championship with the Perth Wildcats in 2010. Rob has coached in China, the Philippines, Japan, Indonesia, Korea, New Zealand, the United Arab Emirates, the Scottish national team, and for six years coached the world team at the annual Nike Hoop Summit in the USA. And along the way, he picked up 14 Coach of the Year awards from various governing bodies. Rob is a coach with a deep focus on teaching people to become elite athletes, and to achieve this, he tries to help them be the best possible version of themselves. He is humble, self-reflective, and with enough experience under his belt to know that great team cultures take time, patience, and dedication to build. The key parts of this interview for me were, how to be a successful coach of an elite level team, you need to be able to understand every single role within the club, so you can match the theory with how it is actually applied. 
And this is why serving an apprenticeship to develop your craft is so important. The importance of reinforcing athletes' strengths in building their confidence and getting them to focus during games. And that if you create a positive and fun culture, people will thrive. But if you micromanage, players start to look over their shoulder and this ultimately impacts their performance. This was a great conversation and I hope you enjoyed as much as Jim and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Rob Beveridge, good afternoon and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. How are you today? Mate, I'm great and to be honest, I'm really honoured to be asked to come on your podcast and look forward to chatting. We love talking all things hoops. So Jim and I are also very excited to have you on, but maybe something really simple to get started. Where are you in the world and what have you been up to so far today? Yeah, so I'm currently living down in Wollongong. So uh, I moved over here about five years ago and coached the Laura Hawks and finished up with them about 18 months ago. And uh, since then, I've been just working for myself. When I say that, I do contract work with FIBA, with Basketball Australia, working with different educational organisations, things like that. So a lot, a lot of uh, coach education work, a lot of mentoring and stuff like that. So after a very, very long journey in the high performance area, it's, it's been nice to actually get away and have a break and get back into the grassroots and working with young kids, working with young coaches. Looking forward to covering all of that spectrum with you today. But I want to start by just mentioning a few of the names that you've been involved with. There are a who's who of Australian basketball. There's Patrick Hunt, Adrian Hurley, Phil Brown, Gordy McLeod, and Andre Lamanis. And this is just this is just the tip of the iceberg I uncovered in my uh, preparation. But probably just a real easy question to get us going. What do you think the great coaches do differently? I've been so privileged that I actually learned my trade. I, can't, I always go back to talking about apprenticeships and trades, just like you've got to go to university and get your qualification. But then after that, that's when you actually learn. And I, I was absolutely blessed that my, my, they're mentors for me. But So my first ever job was working at the AIS but back in the early 90s. Patrick Hunt took me under his wing, same with Adrian Hurley. Phil Brown, Gordon Cloud, they were there. They were the coaches there. And I got to, to learn so much from them. And, and probably the things that were great about those guys were that they, they're so approachable. They are there to help you to become better. And that's what I found with all those coaches is that they didn't fear anything. They were there to pass on knowledge. They were there. And they all had different strengths. Some were technically really good coaches. Like they really, really good coaches. Adrian Hurley was a master of dealing with egos. So I actually left the AIS and went to Perth Wildcats as a, as a nobody, more or less like the janitor. I was the water boy. I did whatever I could do back then. But he had an amazing ability to communicate. So all those coaches that we've mentioned, are technically they're, they're great, very good communicators. They're people that look after their athletes, their staff. They're, they're people that just unbelievable with what they do with that and that that was a huge influence on me that in my future in down the track was that I was they taught me how to to, I guess communicate was probably the big thing you talked about studying and working at the AIS you've actually got a degree in applied science in sports studies and a graduate diploma in elite sports coaching but I wanted to ask you knowing what you know now what do you wish they would have taught you back then yeah, it's one of those things when you go through university, you're green, you think you know a lot. 
and, and you go and you're very gun ho you're trying to be the best you know and, and you know, particularly in basketball it's all about the X's and O's is fantastic offences and defences and things like that, but they don't really teach that in, in university, so to speak. I guess when I look back and I think, what could have I really, really learnt a lot more of was particularly the mental health side of things. That wasn't really covered a whole lot back in those days. And, uh, it, you know, I went through situations where I had, you know, athletes' father was killed. I was with that person when it happened. And you go, well, they don't teach me that back in university. How do you deal with those situations? I've been through people that have had illnesses and cancer and things like that. So you're not prepared for that. And really, back in the university, you're just not. You learn through through a lot of experiences and things like that. And it's hard. It's really, really difficult. Other things like I've worked with some great organisations, like really, really rich organisations, like corporate type of things. You know, when I was at the Wildcats, incredible, incredible resource. But then I've been on the other end where I've been with two clubs that have folded. I've been in situations of you've got no money coming in. There's bullying, there's harassment, there's all of those things that you actually don't get taught in university. Like you get all the rosy picture about, oh, it's so fantastic. The lights come on, you're playing 10,000 people and whatever else, but you're not told about you're working 60 hours a week. You're still up at two o'clock. You're getting phone calls from, from ownership groups saying, well, if you don't win the next game, you're fired, or I'm going to fire this player and that player. So you don't learn any of that in university. It all, it all happens when you actually get in the real world. So I don't know, and that's what I'm trying to do now is when I do lecturing, particularly first-year university people, about there's more to coaching than just the technical side. There's so much more. and it's, You've got to teach them the holistic approach. That there, there's got to be some pretty big barriers that you come up against. You mentioned something interesting there, bullying. Have you found any techniques that are more impactful than others in dealing with bullies, either on the court or probably most importantly in the dressing room? It's a completely different situation. You know, I find that the bullying within a team, like you might have some alpha dog, you have a player come in and they try and stamp their authority and the bullies and stuff like that. But what I try and do with those types of players is I've got, I've got a, a very strong peer group. So when you've got good leadership in your group, like with strong personalities, they can generally take care of that. So if you've got a minority group within the team that are bullies, generally it's only maybe only one tops. They become selfish and it's all about them and they intimidate or whatever it might be, if you want to call that bullying. Generally, that's not too bad. The, the other bullying is, is probably more so from the management side of things and the ownership side of things. And it, it, it happens with... It's when you don't win or a lot of owners uh, of professional teams, they're, they're very, very successful in business and they've done amazing. But sport's different when you're dealing with, there's so many different things to do with injuries and off-court issues or whatever it might be. So there's sort of two sides to the bullying. It, it does become difficult. In my situation, I, I have been in it and, and you try and work through those types of things. But at the end of the day, when it becomes so tough for, for you mentally and physically, you get out. <laughs> Simple as that. I made that decision that I, I didn't want to be involved in that, that, that situation. So I, I removed myself from it. Rob, you transitioned into coaching very quickly. In fact, you, you started with state teams when you were just 19 years old, which I 
it's very, very young. Was there a person or an event that triggered this desire in you to be a coach? I always wanted to be a player. I think, you know, when we're young, under 14, 16, I want to be a professional player. So I played the Australian Club Championships, 14s, you know, all the national 16s, 18s, 20s. I went through that that pathway. And I, I, I guess I was lucky in the sense that I grew up in Canberra. So ACT was a small pool. So that's why I made the team. If I was in Victoria, New South Wales, Queens, I, I wouldn't have made it. I, I just wasn't good enough. But when I was in the under-18 team, I, I also played in the Division One State League. Uh, on a Wednesday night. And the club I played with was called Ramblers. And Dave Nelson was there, Gary Ball, a few few of the Canberra Cannons and stuff like that. But what was great about that club was that if you played in the Division One, they would cover your registration, your, your uniforms and pocket money or whatever it might be. But in return, you had to coach. So it was compulsory that we had to coach. So, so I was 16 at that stage and uh, I started coaching mini ball. So I was just coaching a bunch of kids and, and I loved it. Just the joy of coaching, it was, it became infectious that I just loved it so much. And that was when I was only 16 that I thought, you know what, I, I love this. And then when I got down to 20s, I knew I was never going to be good enough, but I wanted to be involved in the sport. So I became an assistant coach with the under-14 ACT team under a guy called Mark Warmington, who to this very day, so going back 35 years, I'm still friends with him, but he was the guy that was responsible for getting me into coaching. And he was the he was the ACT development officer. He was a hard-ass. Like, he, he didn't care. It was all about the kids. It was teaching fundamentals. It was attention to detail, all of those things. So I was very lucky that I, I got to serve time with, with Warmo, but that's how I actually got into coaching and an opportunity came up where uh, I was the head coach of the under-14 team for the club championships and Mark Warmington was my mentor. So he came in as a senior assistant coach and it was a case of, okay, you coach, I'll, I'll deal with the parents. So it was a really good situation. And yeah, I was 19 when I did my first ever national championships and it, it just went from there that, that, that I loved it. And I became, and that, that even when I went to university, it became almost an obsession with everything I did at university was involved in basketball. So whatever unit it was, whether it was physiology, biomechanics, psychology, whatever, everything I was studying was from the basketball side of things. So it was almost a, a case of OCD, but I had great mentors around me that got me involved with the Patrick Hunts and the, and the Adrian Hurley's, Gordy's, Phil Brown, because they, they saw my passion. They saw that I loved it at such a young age, and that's why they took me under their wing. Well, you actually had a great apprenticeship as a coach before you get to the National League. And, of course, we're going to talk about being the coach of the world team later on. But you coached in 14 youth national championships along the way in that apprenticeship. And I wondered, you you mentioned a little bit in your opening, actually, the importance of an apprenticeship. And I wanted to ask, what advice do you give other coaches on taking the time to craft an apprenticeship? I can't emphasise it enough because people want to become the head coach of a national league team when they're 25. They love the sexy stuff. And I think it's really important that you've got to understand every single role that's involved. So that's what I mentioned. When I went over to Perth, 
I went and worked with the Wildcats and I did everything from helping with the warm-up, the stretching, the stats, the clock, the rebounding, the individuals, you name it. So I'm hanging out with Andrew Vlahoff and James Crawford, Ricky Grace, Scott Fisher. you got Adrian Hurley as the, the master coach there, seeing how they operate. They taught me how to do the video. So, so they, they were very inclusive. They brought me in and I learned everything. I saw the importance of of strapping, the importance of massage before the game, the importance of recovery, all of those little things there that, so I went through that. So I learned from those guys, but then I'd go and coach my own team and try and apply my principles. So really I found, I'd go and, I worked with Guy Malloy as well, who ironically ended up being my best man at my wedding. Lived together in Perth. He's one of the, the greatest teachers of the game for a skill development perspective. So when you're working with these people and see how they do things, that's how I learnt. So I wanted to learn about skill development. I wanted to learn about video, about warm-up, everything like that. So you, you learn that stuff at university in the books, physiology and biomechanics and all that. But then when you get hands-on, you see actually how it's actually really applied. We'll talk about the Wildcats in a minute, but I'd actually like to take a sidestep or actually continue on the journey because this great apprenticeship leads you to be the Australian men's under-20 coach. And in 2003, that team famously goes on to win the World Championships in Greece, beating the USA team in the semi-final. There were a lot of soon-to-be-famous players in your team, actually, and in the other teams during that, that tournament as well. I'm really fascinated to know how you were able to shape that team of athletes from across a vast geography into such a high-functioning team so quickly. I coached at like the under-20 national level. I think I did eight, eight years. I think I won four nationals and came run-up four times. So it, that was the age group that, that, that I, I felt really comfortable with. And because I was successful at that level, I think that I gained the respect of a lot of, a lot of the players so when I was appointed as the head coach, I already knew everybody anyway. They knew who I was, what was about my style of game. Of the, when we had our squad together of you know, 16 to 20 players, probably eight, eight of the 20 were played for me in New South Wales. So they were extremely familiar with me because I, I was the head coach of the New South Wales Institute of Sport at the time. And we had six of my players from N-Swiss actually go to AIS. So the Damien Martin, Steve Market, Markovich, Alex Marich, Blagojanev, it went on. So my players actually went down to the AIS. And then all of a sudden when you bring in the Andrew Bogarts and the Brad Neelys and you know, those types of players, we, we were able to bring them into the Australian Institute of Sport for, for two years. So I would regularly be down in Canberra. You know, we'd be running camps and stuff like going on tour. So I knew all the players anyway, and they knew me. So I developed a pretty good relationship with them. So it wasn't as if they were all over the country. We actually had them pretty much based in Canberra the whole time, playing as, as a group. So my assistant coach, Marty Clark, he was the head coach of the AIS at the time. So I'm the head coach of the national team, but we ran very, very similar offences and defences. Sort of, you know, not, not a pact or anything like that, but he was an amazing assistant coach. So he's going, okay, this is the style of game. When I say the style of game, it was the, our national style of game. 
wasn't, I didn't invent it. It was just, it's been, we have a style of game that's been passed down over the generations from the Adrian Hurleys, the Barry Barnes, uh, Lindsay Gaze. You've got to look back in the history that no single coach actually invented the Australian style of game. It was more the attitude that we, we developed. So I was just part of that pathway. So when we brought them together, I had some really, really high character people that were so unbelievably hardworking. They really got after it. And when you got leaders like your Damien Martins and your Bogarts you know, in particular that are driving that every single day, it actually makes your job as a coach a lot easier. Well, your success with the Australian Under-20 team leads you to be invited by Nike to participate in their Hoop Summit for Young Basketballs. And for six years, you coached the world team against the USA team at that summit. And I was looking through the list of first-round draft picks that uh, came through your team. <laughs> Nicholas Badum, Sergey, uh, Sergey Ipka, Tristan Thompson. I mean, this list goes on and on and on. I imagine in those games, with all the attention that's on the players, the nerves must be quite high. And I wanted to ask you, has there any methods you found in helping people deal with nerves and just calm down and remain focused in important games? The appointment into that role, I didn't realise how big it was. When I had a phone call from you know, a guy called Rich Shoebrooks that invited me in to coach the team, I actually thought when he rang that it was one of my mates just taking the, the piss out of me, making a joke and stuff like that. And he said, I'll oh, ring back in 24 hours if you want to do it. And so he rang back. And I thought, wow. And I started researching it and I saw the players that were involved with, you know, the Tony Parkers and Power of the Soul and things like that. And I thought, wow, this is, this is going to be an incredible challenge and situation that you've got pretty much seven days. Uh, you're training a couple of, day, couple of times a day and you've got players, all different languages from all over the world. And they are the best. They are the most ultimate. But then when you see the USA, USA team that's lining up with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant and, you know, the list, the list Bradley Bill, it just goes on and on. You go on, you get pretty nervous and you're, at, you're in the stadium and first time I did it was in Memphis and I've rocked in and there's over 200 people around the, the side of the, on the sides. And there was like Larry Bird and Chris Mullen and Mike Fratello and, you know, all these, these people and, you know, they come up and, you know, they introduce them to, and you're just blown away. Like I'm going, oh my God, that's Larry Bird. <laughs> you know, like Larry said, oh, I love your drill. Do you mind if I use it? And I'm going, oh my God, you're Larry Bird. <laughs> you know, so it was, it was amazing experience, but and what I found was particularly after my first year or two of being involved, the enormity of it, that the amount, the influence of just that one game, when you have the very best players in the world versus the very best in the USA, that everybody is looking on these players. And what I learned during that six years in particular was nearly every player had an agent. Well, particularly the USA, uh, sorry, the international players, nearly every single person had an agent because that's their meal ticket to the NBA. So they were quite highly influential where they would be in the year of the play. You've got to do this. Uh, you, you've got to get 20 points. You've got to 10 rebounds. You've got to do blah, 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 blah. But what I ended up doing with the players is that to get them to realise who are you, what, mate, what defines you to be great at what you do. So... If you're a, a rebounder, you go out and you rebound the crap out of it. If you're an athlete, you run the floor and dunk it. If you're a shooter, you shoot it. If you're a penetrator, penetrate it. So I really tried to, to define the roles of the players to make them comfortable. And when they started to get a bit ratty, 
I'd bring them in and just reinforce to them, what's your strength? What are you great at? Because in particular, at the international NBA level, everybody knows if you're talented. You know, they know that. They can see that you're six foot ten with a seven foot six wingspan and you're an athlete. They see that. They want to see the coachability. They want to see when I'm on the sideline, when I'm communicating to a player, is he actually listening to you or is he going off and doing his own thing? Is he becoming selfish? NBA scouts and NBA coaches and all that, that whole entire thing, when they're investing tens of millions of dollars into, into drafting players, they've got to get it right. So that's what I try to explain to the people. You don't have to go out and hit 30 points. I mean, that, that'll help. Don't get me wrong. That'll help. But you've got to, you've got to be able to fit in. And I think that's, that's a real big thing that I try to get through the players to, to relax them. You know, if you're open, you've got to shoot that sun because that's your shot. So a lot of that, there was a lot of positive reinforcement and, and trying to keep them level-headed and, and, and calm as I possibly could, particularly in a big arena when you've got 10, 15,000 people watching and you've got Kevin Durant coming down the court, it's, it's pretty nerve-wracking. Rob, you've spoken about being a people pleaser early in your career and getting caught up in trying to help the players solve their problems. But what advice would you give to the other leaders out there who might be falling into the same trap of trying yeah. to please people and not primarily leading their team? I've got that personality that that I, I always try and do the right thing for everybody. But I found that through experience over time, you, you get used and abused, and it, it takes time to realise that. And Rick Charlesworth, who I spent time with, John Walsford, you know, some of those great coaches, I learned from those those people. And it, it was all, you know, 80-20 principle. I can't do anything for 20%. You know, I can't solve the problems. And what I've learned as a coach is that when you try and solve the problems for it, it that, that's a Band-Aid. They've actually probably got to go through that hurt, that pain, They've got to make the mistakes. Now, you want to be there as a, as a buffer. You want to be there to help them. But I found, you know, where I was trying to help them too much. And I guess over time, the more experience I got as a coach is that they had to learn of their failures. And I find it's always a lot easier to, to teach people and show people through the failure rather than always success and always putting a Band-Aid on and trying to help them. So I think that, that's, that's what I need to say to, co- to coaches in particular. You, you can't solve all the problems in, in the world. Sometimes it's just the way, the way it is. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We've reached the point where we get to 2009, and you become the head coach of the Perth Wildcats. 
and the team go on this amazing run. Three grand finals in four years and the 2010 championship. What were some of the things you did when you first got there that drove this result? Before I took the Perth job, I was actually offered the Perth job previous to that. And I, I knew in my own mind that, that, that I wasn't up to that. So I ended up coaching West Sydney Razorbacks was my first professional NBL job. I was speaking with Adelaide, I was speaking with Perth at that time because I had a pretty successful junior career and an up-and-coming coach. So I spoke to their owners and management and stuff like that. But that I actually made the decision that I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't mature-wise. How could I deal with multi-million dollar owners, media, expectations, sponsors? I just knew that. So that's why I actually took a lesser job because West Sydney Racebacks, the year before I got there, had only won five games. So there was no expectation for me as a rookie coach to, to do well. In my first year, I think I only won 10 games, but that's successful in my mind. Sometimes people look at winning records and things like that. I'd never really look at that. I look at what change have you made. So I served my apprenticeship with a, it's no disrespect to West Sydney, but that's realistic that they were a lesser team than, than Perth or Adelaide. The job then came up in Perth after doing two years of working in an organisation that folded. We didn't get paid. It was tough. And I felt that that was good life lessons for me. And I thought, you know what, I'm ready to do this. I know what I want. I know what you need to do to be successful. So when I got into Perth and met with Jack Bendat and the board, said, okay, you guys have not done anything in 10 years. You're a very rich organisation, but you haven't won a championship it was 10 years before I won the championship with them. And I said, what you're doing isn't working. So if you want me to come in and coach the team, which I really wanted to do, but I told them that I'm not interested, I'm staying put, that you know, we have to change the way things are. And they're a rich organisation and they, were, they actually listened to the saying, okay, we have to change the, the personnel yeah, we've got to change the infrastructure of the organisation. So I went in and did a presentation to the owner and the CEO, Nick Marvin, about, okay, we have to have an athlete-centred approach. We've got to have an infrastructure put in place with really good staff, with assistant coaches, strength and conditioning, doctors, physios, chaplains, player welfare. Like I gave them a model and then we have to we build an infrastructure that, is going to help the athletes become the best they can. But then we had to recruit athletes that were great people, high character, great worth ethic. So because I was, I spent 10 years back working with the national junior program, give or take, you know, national, you know, the under 20 level, I, I had, I didn't have a monopoly as such, but, but I had a generation of players that I had an ability to, to recruit. So that's how I was able to get. Damien Martin and Matt Knight, those types of players, because I've actually spent time developing those players. I'm a teacher of the game. That's what I do. I teach them to become elite athletes. So then when I got to Perth and presented this model, uh, they agreed with me and we had to get great imports. So I brought in Kevin Lish. I've already got Sean Redditch there. I've got Paul Rogers. I've now built a program of uh, a good infrastructure with really good people. And we won championships and to be honest, you know, I'm pretty disappointed that we didn't win more because two of the championships at the grand finals we lost, Damian Martin was out. 
he snapped his Achilles in the semi-final and, the, and another semi-final, he tore his ligaments in his ankle. So we actually played two grand final series without Damien Martin. Let's fast forward all these years. Damien Martin is one of the most influential, greatest leaders and defensive players that, that our country will ever see. That's why they've won so many championships. So I'm a little bit, I don't have different twisters, <laughs> the, the, the thing, but I'm pretty disappointed that I know that if we'd had Damo playing those grand finals, we would have won a whole lot more. Talking about disappointment, you have talked about your dream of coaching the Australian team one day. You came very close in 2013. You got down to the last two and you missed out. I've heard you say you were devastated was the word you used not to get the job. And it made me wonder how now you handle passing along similar news to your players and whether there are any methods or techniques you found that are more useful than others. I, I, I set my, my bar so high and with really, really high expectations comes big disappointment. So that, that's something that I've learned. The higher the expectation, the bigger the disappointment. So I've, I've learned, like I put all my eggs in one basket. That was the focus. And, and ultimately, the re- you know, I was told the reason I didn't get it was because we lost that grand final against Andre Lamanis' team, a wonderful coach. They, they beat us in the grand final and he's won more championships than me. He got appointed. And I think it's a bit of a BS reason to, to do that. But what I, I now reflect on is that you probably get a bit ahead of yourself that I, I know I was doing a really good job. I was in the mix and stuff like that. And there was whispers that that's the, the direction that they were going to go. And when you lose a player of Damien Martin's calibre, well, that sort of removes some of that. So, so I think it's really important that what I now <laughs> get through to my players is that you've you got to have no regrets in what you do. You give, give 100% with what you do, and if you don't get it, you don't get it. Now you walk away with your, your head held high. And uh, something I do with my players, I am absolutely honest with them. I tell them how it is, how I see it, what I believe. They need to hear the truth. Now I think that that's what I've learned through those experiences, that when you expect something to happen, it doesn't happen the way maybe it would have, could have, should have happened. Now you, you, you need to just be honest and upfront with what you do. Rob, I have a great quote from you where you say, culture is the expression of your organisation, the team's values, its attitudes and beliefs. So if someone wanted to try and improve the culture in their team, what things would you tell them to do first? Yeah, so when, when, when I look at culture, people say, what's culture? And to me, it's the, the environment in which you're working. And when you look at the really successful organisations, generally speaking, like I've done research into Google, you've looked into to really successful organisations, they, they look after their staff. So they, they recruit really good people that are really good at their jobs and you empower them to do their jobs. So I, I, I believe that you put your players in a really good, positive, fun, healthy culture that they're going to thrive. Where, on the other hand, if there's going to be the players walking on eggshells or your staff where where they're getting micromanaged, they're getting questioned, all of those things, if you're looking over your shoulder all the time, it's really hard to perform to your optimum. So that's why I believe that you've got to have a, a real positive, 
healthy culture environment for them to thrive. And that, that, that's, that's the, the success that I've had is that when I've had organisations that back me, support me, and we work together, it's really important that my philosophy, it's athlete-centred, it's coach-driven, and it's administrative-supported. And I mean, what I mean by that is we put a, an infrastructure around the athlete so they can be the best they can. So I've got a good strength conditioning coach. I've got a, a good physio. I've got, I look at the holistic, you know, I even have a player welfare officer to make sure that they've got personal professional development, that their wife and partner or kids and that whole thing, that they're, they're doing okay. So the athlete can really uh, just focus on, on, uh, on playing to their best of their ability. So when I do that, but then if you get in a situation where, as I said, if you're looking over your shoulder and you, you don't get physio, you don't get paid on time, you don't get all the, the, the expectations of working in a professional organisation, when they do that, that's when players leave. Again, I look at it, it, the success of the Perth Wildcats is the reason they've been so successful for such a long time is they've had the same core group of players and they all get well looked after. They've been offered more money to go elsewhere, but they, they don't go chase the money because of the environment, the facilities, they've got recovery centre, they've got their meals cooked for them at lunch or whatever it might be. So I think that's, that's something that was really, really important. You've spoken about evaluating players based on behaviours, not statistics. So I wanted to ask, what are the behaviours that are fundamental requirements from players in your teams? Again, this is what I've learned through the Patrick Hunts and the, the, the Adrian Hurlings and th those coaches as I've come through. And they coach people. And they may not be the greatest offensive, defensive coaches and stuff like that, but they play hard. I speak to Rick Charlesworth. I look at him, the amount of gold medals that he's won and what he's achieved in his life. And they say he's a hard ass. He's a hard ass, but he's a very, very fair man. And he tells you how it is, tells you the truth. And, and that, that's what athletes need to, to know. They need to know the truth. But And the characteristics I look for in athletes is they have to be honest. They've got to be hardworking, a great work ethic. They don't accept mediocrity. They want to improve they don't blame others. And probably one of the most important things is that they're very, very highly accountable. So that's what I look for. And, you know, I can watch a video. So when I recruit players, yeah, I can sit down on the computer and I can watch this player, but, but I want to I get deeper than that. I want to know who they are. How do they learn? You know, have they got boyfriends, girlfriends? Are they in gangs? Are they, where do they live? Have they got tattoos? What, what's their belief? What Have they studied? Do they fail school? Do they speak to their coaches, their teammates? So I really get into try and find out who they are. And if I can find out who they really are, that, that shows them that I'm actually investing in them to, to be able to help them to the best of their ability, knowing because everybody's got skeletons in, in the closet. Nobody's perfect but let's try and help people to become the best version of themselves. Speaking of helping players become the best version of themselves, there's a quote from you where you say, ultimately, when you're in a team sport, when you've only got X amount of spots, people miss out. And to find the difference between the players is their attitude. And so I wanted to ask, are you able to share a story of how you worked with a player to lift their attitude and ultimately their performance? Look, I always remember, because I did so many state teams, uh, I, I remember rocking up and you've got 80 to 100 kids there. So you rock up and you've got maybe a couple of courts, you've got 80 to 100. And I can only take 10. <laughs> you know, I can only take 10 players. 
and, and you might, and then you've got your reserves and stuff like that. So what, what I like to do is right at the very, very start, I said, okay, this situation, we got 80, 100 people here. I can only take 10. So a lot of people are going to miss out right now. So what I want you to do is divide yourself into groups. So let's get all the point guards over here, the shooting guards, the wings, the power forwards and the centers. Like go, go away, you know, go and join your group. And, and you'll go and see in the point guards, you might have 30 people, 30 people in, in, in that group. And you say, okay, let's do the maths here. There's 30 people in the point guards and I'm taking two of you. So I'm probably going to take two ones, two twos, two threes, two fours, two fives. So let's look at that. So there's 30 people there. So what I'm looking for is the, the two people that are going to give everything that, that I ask of them. I, I know the skill level. And then all of a sudden you'll see people, they shift lines because they look down, oh, geez, there's only 30, but there's only 10 there. You know, so they sort of work that out. But but what I try and do is, is be, again, objective and realistic saying it's going to be difficult. So I'm looking for a person. So if it comes down to two people that have got equal ability, I'm going to go with the person that is more coachable, better attitude. Because if we're going away, and this this is what we do with our national team, is when you're going away at times for two, four, six weeks at a time and you're living in hotels and there's travel and there's a whole lot of adversity, people get on each other's nerves and things like that. So you've got to look at the personalities and how they fit in. Are they prepared to sacrifice their court time? Are they prepared to share a room with somebody they don't like? So there's all those little things that, that I do look at. So, so anyway, when I sort of get it all down... I'm looking for the person that's going to dive on the floor. I'm going to look at the person that helps their teammate up. I'm going to look at the person that has a, a better attitude. So I sell that from day one at the trials. Part of my subjectivity is a big part of, of, of selection. So really I try and cut it down as quick as I can. But then once I get really, really close, you've got to be upfront and honest and say, okay, this is what I need from you. Alex Marich is probably one of the, the, my, my all-time favourite players that back in those days, he wasn't highly skilled or anything like that, late developer, the big boy and stuff like that, but the most amazing attitude that every single training session, you know, he'd give 100%, he'd help his teammate up, he'd do all of those little things there. So with him, it was just giving him the confidence, that belief to go, okay, you know what, you can make this this team because you're six foot 10, you're 120 kilos. You can set some great screens for people. You can get in and rebound. You can do all those little things. So that's what I loved about him was, I guess, giving him a carrot, giving him a goal and saying, this is what I'm looking for. And he grabbed it with both hands. Fast forward all these years, in the Olympics, full-time professional in Europe, and not the most highly skilled player, but one of the best role players that, that, that I've ever coached. Rob, I know you've got a book out at the minute, and I watched you on a video talking about the book, and you said your responsibility as a coach is to do your very, very utmost to make sure the athletes are in a real positive environment, and if they do that, they'll thrive. And so I wanted to finish by asking you, after now 30 years of coaching, 30 plus, what do you hope is the legacy you've left as a coach to those athletes? Every athlete that I ever coach, I want them to be better versions of themselves. And you know, I always look at like four different pillars that one, the skill development side of things. I teach them to become 
better play skill-wise. Yeah, better passes, shooters, defense, whatever it might be, the skill component I take care of. I want them to be better physically. So have good strength and conditioning coaches and physios and make them the uh, as big and strong as they can. Third component is mentally. You know, get them to to understand that the, the why we do things. And, and then the fourth thing, which is probably overlooked a lot of the time, it's the holistic approach, how they are post-career uh, or, or, or post-sporting career. So that, those four areas, and that's how I've always built programs. We, we're trying to get every player, so when they come in, a certain level, and when they leave, they're, they're, they're better both on and off the court. So I'm hoping the leagues here, I'll, I'll leave it that they are better better uh, players, better people. And then what I hope is that what I've taught them with my beliefs over time of what success is about, and it's not necessarily winning, but uh, being part of a, a successful program is that they can then pass that on to to, to their kids, their family, their, their post-career as leaders in the, in the workforce. So really, that, that's probably the legacy that I want to leave as a coach. Rob Beveridge, it's been Fantastic talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Your book's winging its way to me as we speak. I can't wait to to read it and explore it. All the best with the continued launch of the book and, and all the best for the season coming up in New Zealand. Thanks very much, Paul. Really appreciate uh, the invite and uh, absolute pleasure chatting to you. Hi, everyone. It's Paul here, and you have been listening to our discussion with Rob Beveridge. The key highlights for me were how it is easier to teach people through failure rather than constantly trying to solve their problems for them, that the peer group within the team should take responsibility for dealing with disruptive or bullying influences and wanting to help people be better versions of themselves and a legacy where people believe success is not just about winning but doing your bit to be part of a successful program. I hope you enjoyed it as much as Jim and I did. And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight. And so if you can put us in contact with a great coach that you know has some timeless lessons on life and leadership to share, then we would love to hear from you. You can contact us using the details in the show notes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.